your 23-year-old daughter, who's a, a, a really great writer, comes home one day and calls you up and tells you, this is what I'm going to do. You go through all the, the, the processes of thinking through that, and you've prepped her for it. She's ready to go. Tell, tell me about the next part. Welcome to the Juice Box Podcast. This is episode 22, and this is the second part of a two-part podcast episode. The first part was in episode 21. So if you have not heard episode 21, pause it right here, go back and listen to episode 21, and then come back and pick up right here where the story leaves off. I don't want to ruin this one by giving you too many details, but let me just say that you are about to hear a firsthand account from the mother of a child with type 1 diabetes. Uh, She is going to start by telling you how she was awoken in the middle of the night by a text from a friend telling her to go turn on CNN. And that is when she will learn that her daughter, who is at base camp on Everest, has just been caught in an avalanche. So then, you know, I knew she had, you know, it was hard to keep finding out that, well, he had to go before her. So I said, well, then I've definitely got to go walk with, you know, Mm -hmm. go with you or do something. How in the world are you going to do a 10-day trek with her? What if you, the thing that complicates all this for her, one of the things I was most concerned about is she has something called cyclic vomiting syndrome. Okay. That's what makes one of, this one of the hardest things. When Svati starts throwing up, she can throw up every half hour for 12 hours. She's had this since she was a child. So this is one of the hardest things about diabetes. We've spent many, many, many times in emergency rooms just to get those IVs and get an antiemetic, something stop the vomiting. Over the years, she's used different things. Is that something related? Um, not really, no. but I've known two, only two other type 1s who have it. But that was actually one of my biggest concerns. I forgot to bring that up because oh, sure. that, when you're out somewhere... You know, the only time I've ever we've ever used glucagon on her was when we were up at a relative's cabin in Maine. Mm-hmm. The nearest hospital was an hour away. She didn't have the one medicine she takes this ondansetron. It's so far, and you put it. People use it for cancer, yep. nausea. You put it under your mouth, under your tongue, and you're good to go. Well, hers had expired, and her blood sugar was dropping, and it was like 50, and then it was 40, and she was throwing up and sitting on the floor, and you know, I, anyway, I used the glucagon. And thank goodness, it was an hour over the, you know, two in the morning, mm-hmm. hour over these bumpy roads to go to the hospital, and it come up to 160. Glucagon works, thank yeah. goodness, but yeah. only works if you have it. So yeah. I always tell patients, you must have two things, a medical alert of some kind and glucagon, or you're not leaving this room because it's, it saves lives. I know many scary stories. I tell people if I have to, to scare them, because it's that important to have backup and be prepared. So anyway, so this that's really what I was worried about. So that was the thing I had talked to. David, who she was going with, I had to make sure that she trained her Sherpa and everything and the glucagon, you name it. I tried to get glucagon from two clinical trials going on to have extra, to have the one, the nasal, the intranasal one that a mm-hmm. friend of mine, Robert Oranger's company is making. And it was too hard. We didn't have enough time to make it part of the study to have it over there. I didn't have time to, didn't, couldn't get it from zero. So she just went with conventional ones and she had a lot of extra and she trained her Sherpa and her porter. So... 
Then the unbelievable thing happens. What happens? She's in Kathmandu and doing everything right, not eating, you know, not eating the, the fruit that's not peeled and stuff. But the night before they're supposed to leave at like five in the morning to get on the little plane that flies up to Lukla to the Kumbu region in the mountains that starts the trek to, to Everest, she got terrible food poisoning. I was gonna say, did so she, she started throwing sick? up. Oh, the medicine God. didn't work. Every now and then the happens. She ended up in the hospital. So she was in the hospital from, again, a very symbolic thing, Good Friday mm-hmm. until Easter. <laughs> and the whole trip was, you know, they were ready to, to fly. They had their reservations going up in the guest houses. Everything was set. Right. Well, no. So did it mean she turns around, comes home? Mm-mm. She had lots of IVs, started feeling better. But for some reason, the the guy, the doctor, and it was an American, they would have expatriate doctors. And a lot of Westerners go in this clinic in Kathmandu. And uh, actually, it was actually even started by that person. She's writing that book about his wife. It's very interesting. Again, all these little connections. connections. So. What happened is she was there, and, and that's the first time we, I'd ever used the Dexcom share because I had that with her, and it was really neat because they had really bad winds and you couldn't get through on the phone, but yet I could share blood sugars. It was really hard seeing her sugars really high right. and not being able to do anything. Yeah. So that was the first of my really, oh my gosh, that which I feared most has happened. But I kept thinking, wait a minute, this is before she's up there, she's in a city, she's got a clinic and a hospital, she's being taken care of. It's fine. Her sugars run a little bit high. They're going to run high up there. So I was relieved, but it was very hard that weekend because not being able to get through. So finally I got through, and then I talked to the doctor and talked to her. She leaves, is able to leave in Easter when she's everything's getting better for her. But, of course, he said she can, she can still go on a track. She can go up to base camp, but she's got to be at least 85%, not 100%. So I thought, okay, she'll stay around Kathmandu for two or three days. What does she do? She leaves the next day because she said, I've got to get out of here, this valley. I'm afraid if I eat the wrong thing again and I just want to get up higher, I'll rest up there. Right. So I can't stop her. I'm here. Anyway, turns out they go to the airport the next morning. She gets on a flight, couldn't get her Sherpa on a flight, so she's off by herself. She, and for some reason, her stuff didn't make it with her. Only she, So she didn't even have what she needed going on this little plane oh up to Lukla, except she she had very little stuff. Anyway, it was one of those fiascos, which, of course, thank goodness, I didn't find out about until then when we were able to communicate that night. <laughs> so now she's, so, making, she's making that small flight now with just her diabetes oh, just supplies her. that she has And, and she her. went. He couldn't get on. He was supposed to be right behind her, and right. she'd already gone through this 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 this. Um, line and security and something that was supposed to be with her on her flight carrying it, they took it off and they put it on the plane. So she didn't even, if something had happened, she had no backup. So Can she speak the language? No, but no. most people speak English. There's oh, so many okay. foreigners That's going up there. So okay. she's not worried. And okay. she's very, very resilient and self-confident. So, okay. so she's okay. But when I heard that that night, I was like, you have got to be kidding. Where are you staying? You know, well, I'm at this guest house where they said to go. And there are all these foreigners here and people who've done the trek and they were having a party. And so she's, so she's fine. Mm-hmm. Right. But I said, so when's, you know, Nawa going to get up there to her, her Sherpa guide. She had a guide and a porter that David had hired for her through their, their outfitters. Um, Anyway, so he gets there the next day, and so I said, well, you're going to rest for two days, right? No, I'm feeling pretty good. We're going to start off. So she did. So they started their trek that was a 10-day trek of acclimatization stuff. You go and you go, you you hike so many miles per day, and then 
you rent sometimes sometimes you stay overnight two days in one of the villages and then you do an acclimatization hike and then go on farther up. Anyway, very interesting. So I followed the whole thing. We could do stuff. She had an Apollo phone, a satellite phone, and her phone and all the backup in case she got sick and stuff and there are some clinics up there. So I actually felt the worst is over, nothing else could happen. Mm-hmm. That had happened. Then she'd gone up there by herself. And then, let's see, the next thing was she got a really bad sore throat and then it started snowing. This season was different than other seasons because they had snow early. It was hard for them to even get the ice fall ready for the climbers to go on up higher because there was so much snow. David and his people were, they were delayed doing that. So I I remember his business manager telling me, "It's it's a sign when you have snow early in April, in the Everest region, it's either very good or very bad. It either cements everything down and you won't have as much earth moving and avalanches and people losing their lives, or it means a lot more avalanches and it's dangerous. And of course, it was the earthquake that did the avalanche. But the point is, she uh, I thought the worst was over and then she was sick up there. Then her iPhone went out. She couldn't take pictures. That's not a big deal, but just not feeling well and traveling and then the snow. So she woke up one morning up there in Tangboche she scattered some ashes of some friends up there and done all these things, was just feeling terrible, still had many days to go. And they had snow, so they were kind of marooned there. Well, then I find my phone. I would keep the phone next to me, and her morning was when I was going to bed, and my night was when she was waking up. So anyway, we'd communicate where we could, and sometimes it would be many days without her, and that was always hard. So I went through ups and downs. Yeah. It was kind of like a roller coaster, not knowing things or, you know, is she okay with that sore throat or how sick is she or how's the snow? Anyway, of course, I found out they hiked through it. And um, anyway, so she eventually made it up there. She gets there, and David's not even there. <laughs> He's gone out on a helicopter with the head of the Everest ER. Anyway, so it was just kind of a difficult for her and that was difficult for me to see her going through something and then it was then there were other little things but basically she settled in and she was happy and then the avalanche yeah because she's so she's pushing through all these these little like yes things and i'm imagining she, as somebody who's never done it before and as a young person when she it gets was there tough. she wants to look up and see david and think oh, yeah. okay, okay oh, yeah, this yeah, is yeah, it yeah. The person got... she went for and to right. work with and to right. do things and plus it was very it was very hard her last day. She said the hardest thing she's ever done, and she's done a lot. She's done marathons, triathlons, the yeah. whole bit. And she said the hardest thing was the last day. Apparently, there was so much snow going to base camp. And you'll see this because she's writing a big article. It's going to be published in a major major magazine mm-hmm. soon. But what happened is she she said the last day, there was so much sun. The sun is so intense up there, yeah. and there was so much snow that she actually felt like she had, she had heat exhaustion. She could not even carry her little pack. She had her guide and the porter carrying everything, and she just tried to Keep herself make, put one step in front of another. Right. And so anyway, so then she gets there, and of course she wants to relax. At least her, you know, her tent was set up, and they all knew she was coming. So they were, she was camped at the main camp that was the Everest ER and the Himalayan, uh, whatever they're called, medical association people, and David and the others. So, you know, at least they knew she was coming, and people welcomed her, but it was kind of weird. So I just kind of felt for her. Yeah. Was her blood sugar, did you look back when she got home on the Dexcom? Was she steady? Was she low? So I couldn't, no, 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 you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't, couldn't get it from there. So her share stopped working when she left Kathmandu. Mm-hmm. The share did not work 
as you got up higher. I thought it was pretty cool that it worked almost 13,000 miles across the earth. That was amazing. She was in the hospital. So at one point, I could actually tell her when she was really tired one night because they thought maybe something else was going. It was just a really bad thing of food poisoning. She'd been so careful to eat everything right. She'd actually gone out with a photojournalist friend of a friend from Quartz who went where all the Westerners go. And they had pizza, and it was all, you know, supposed to be the safest place, but she's sure it was just something in that. Um, so what happened is, uh, gosh, I've forgotten what I was saying, so I'm talking so much. I, um, was, just, I was wondering about her blood sugars, like, over, overall, oh, yeah. were so, they steady? So I were couldn't see up there. So what but, she said is, actually, she was surprised. They, yes, they were high, and they got more resistant. That's what happens. Every okay. time you go up a 1,000 feet, you need to increase your basal. So she was doing everything she that we'd gone over and, and, and both Sebastian, Will, and even David, we had had to come up with all these scenarios. So imagine she had helicopter rescue that he'd paid for. It's insurance, $425 because helicopter rides up there cost $5,000, right, mm-hmm. to come up there. So, but she had the helicopter insurance and everything else if she had to be taken out. But we still had to go over scenarios. What if it can't get up there? What if this happens? What if that happens? There was so much snow right before the avalanche that there were two American women up there who had done something really stupid. They'd hiked up to the top, and they didn't, I mean, up to base camp, and you're not really supposed to even come in there, but they were both sick with terrible altitude sickness, and the doctors didn't turn them away. They ended up using up a lot of the stuff, but they couldn't They couldn't get a helicopter up to them. Okay. The, the, those doctors had stayed up the night before Meg and Rachel, the night before that avalanche happened and were already very, very tired. Right. I mean, just because of these girls. But anyway, so Shadi had to be ready and ha- already have all these scenarios. And David made me go over scenarios, whether what if this happened, like when she was flying up to Lukla and something, it was like, just like what we had gone over. Yeah. Um, and so not that she used those because she wasn't to the point where she was lying down and starting to throw up and getting low and stuff, but we had gone through all these scenarios. So when her blood sugars were high and she was sick and she had that sore throat and she was having to hike and stuff, you know, she had some of her stuff was with a porter, some of her stuff was with the Sherpa, some of the stuff right there with her, some in her jacket. And that's what, of course, saved her when she was in the avalanche, too. She lost everything, but she had stuff on her person. Because we'd always plan that. Where was she in relation to the mountain when this happens? And, and where does the earthquake happen that actually so, triggers the avalanche? Okay, so what happened is it was uh, it was April 25th. Um, and the day before, she had just told me about these two American girls coming up, using up a lot of the resources. Because she would be a backup and help with the Everest ER because they were right next to her tent. And they were all camped together. Okay. So she got to know these doctors and the whole thing really well and what was going on at base camp and all the stories and the, the different groups of climbers and stuff. So it was very interesting. And so I'd hear the stories and that night, you know, I'd heard about how everybody in the camp. So a lot of people were already going up to start acclimatizing, going up to camp one, camp two over the ice fall. And so a lot of the climbers were already starting to go because you, what you do is when you climb Everest 29,000 feet, you have to acclimatize your body. So climbers go up, they stay for like two days, they come back down. They go up, they come down. They do this for the first month. They're there for two months. And then they all make the work towards going towards the summit, going to Camp 1, Camp 2, Camp 3, Camp 4, and summiting in the next month in May when there's a little window of opportunity, okay? And a lot of people going up this mountain. And that's what all the controversy is, so many people on, on, on the mountain and yeah, causing time. the problems. Like you'll see there's a big Universal Studios film coming out in September, on Everest from the tragedy from 1996. So 
uh, what happened is, I don't know what I was hmm. losing it for a minute here. You were saying, so where was she? So what happened is the night before I talked to her on the phone, the mood was very somber. People were sick and tired of the snow. There was a lot of snow. The Wi-Fi wasn't working. The satellite wasn't in place that was supposed to be. So a lot of the stuff she signed up to do with David and she was being paid for. She was a journalist. She was supposed they were going to be doing this, um, like doing a documentary on why people were up at Everest and all this interesting stuff. Then they, she was working for Glacier Works. That's his nonprofit that watches, watches the melting of the glaciers. She was supposed to be blogging on that. She couldn't. Wi-Fi wasn't none working. None of that was usual. happening. They actually have Wi-Fi up there. So everything wasn't working right, and then they were supposed to do some filming or some stuff for this movie, you know, this Universal Pictures movie in September that David is a producer on. So all this, nothing, everybody didn't feel right. People were really tired of the snow because it makes it very hard to climb, but a lot of them went anyhow. So the mood was somber. It was bad. It was the first time I ever heard her say she was homesick, right? Mm -hmm. It was six hours later. I went to bed that night with a really bad feeling. I woke up at 4.15, sitting straight up, thinking, this is not good, the snow. I remembered what his business manager, Ellen, had told me, that it's not good to have snow. And I kept thinking, this isn't good. It must be really hard. It's, you're not supposed to have snow down there. What are they going to do? And it's dangerous. I just had a really bad feeling. Fifteen minutes later, there was like a little text on my phone, and I would always be super sensitive to kind of keeping yeah. one ear awake because she would, she would text me usually when I was sleeping during the night because that would be her day. Yeah. And we'd have little things back and forth from her in a polyphone. And um, so I thought, oh, good, that's her. I hope everything's okay. So it was a text from my friend who was up late about 1 o'clock in the morning in California saying, you need to go turn on CNN. And she was the one who did the same, who had called me, the morning of 9-11. So the first thing I thought is, oh my God, there's been a terrorist attack in this country. I didn't think it had anything to do with that. And then I read on, she did another text that said earthquake in Nepal. So my, you know, my heart went down to my stomach, went and turned on CNN, saw that. And then when I saw the avalanche, I just, you know, thought this is not good. And I remembered everything she'd said about the night before. The mood wasn't right. David wasn't feeling, everybody was just feeling that things weren't right on the mountain. And the, the Sherpas in the, the village, the people of that area are very superstitious and feel very strongly about that mountain and right. the way things happen. So anyway, so it just wasn't good. And so then I was in constant contact with David's business manager, Ellen. We'd become very close through all of this. And she was saying, yeah, this doesn't look good. And all the years he's gone there, this is probably about the worst thing. So it was pretty scary because I did not hear from her for until 1030 that night. But Ellen got word through people, through people that, yes, they're alive and they're okay. And so all I kept thinking is, oh, okay, so there was an avalanche on one part of the camp, didn't even touch her. I was wrong. Right. So it kind of shielded me for the day. As the day went on, I knew she would have called me if she could have. Mm -hmm. So I got more and more and more worried and we'd gone on a hike and I had people calling from everywhere and we had family and people who work with the state department trying to get in touch. And then I'm finding out from other people, Oh, there are these lists of who's been found and who hasn't and eight died. And so as the day went on, it got harder and harder. Yeah. And then fam family came over for dinner and we just, you know, it's just like being in a daze. When this all's happening, you're, yeah. I would imagine you're not, even that focused on the diabetes aspect of it. This is just no. now your daughter's just in peril. And it's just survival. Right, right. It's just survival. Right. I didn't even 
think of that part. All it was was, is she alive? Is she injured? Right. Why hasn't she called me? She would, she would know. Because that's the one thing we've always had. I've told her she would go off at college and they would do like a run through the woods. Dart- Dartmouth was always doing these outdoor things and yeah. excursions and things through the night where they'd hike or whatever it was. Well, plus- and I remember one time, you know, a friend couldn't, she wasn't back in a room. You know, I, I knew something was wrong and she had forgotten to tell me that when they went on this evening hike or something that was all night. So, you know, I was ready to call police, do everything. And I called her friends. I've always kept my daughter's friends phone numbers because I needed them in case and they're helpful. But, but after that, I remember telling her, I know it's hard and I should have just trusted you, but you have to always let me know because a parent's mind, if you can't get in touch with your kids, you can't help but think they're lying somewhere, just lying down. They have a low and they're out. So she's always been good with that. So I, that's what bothered me. And then I kept thinking, no, it's the communications. You just can't get through. Right. Right. But then it's the unknown at that point. You can't, it's the unknown. You fear. So where did the earthquake, where was the epicenter of the the earthquake? It was um, between not too far from Kathmandu, Kathmandu going up the first one. There, there was another bigger one two weeks later, but it was, north of Kathmandu. And so what it did is it triggered avalanches up in that region. So there were entire villages wiped out, entire villages. And many trekkers, foreign trekkers, were killed and missing and never found again. I mean, because that's that's trekking season up there. And so when you're hearing those reports as well, it got, you know, got more and more anxious about this stuff. And we just had a lot of people checking my husband's Indian. So he had Indian friends and I knew Sati was camped next to the Indian army. And they had, we had people getting in touch with so-and-so and trying to get messages in. I found a guy through a friend of mine in India, an American friend. She had a Norwegian friend who was up there and he was, he was actually getting Wi-Fi and, and blogging. There were a, a few little parts of base camp that weren't hit by it. Okay. Um, and some was different amounts, they got the worst of it right where she was. Okay. And I didn't know that then. So <clears throat> at 10.30 at night, I get a, we get a call. My husband hands the phone to me. I have no idea what she'd been through. So she was pretty much in shock and just saying, you know, I would have called you if I could have, but I couldn't. They were just basically huddled together for survival and borrowing sleeping bags, and somebody had given them warm stuff because everything was bare, everything was gone. So it wasn't a regular avalanche that's just snow coming down, Scott. It was a lot of wind. They right. said 280 to 310 mile an hour wind. So it's more like a bomb hit mm-hmm. base camp um, or like a tornado because everything was ripped up. That's how people died because their bodies were flown into rocks because their skulls were cracked completely open. She yeah. saw horrendous thrown. things. Yeah. That's where a little bit of PTSD stuff. So she was injured. She had a gash on her head. She was she was hit. Um, it was still open a little bit when she came home. It was hard to see that two weeks later because she hadn't, she'd just been in survival mode. She right. was up there for a week after. So anyway, so she called and I, you know, of course I asked about her diabetes stuff. She had had some stuff like she's always supposed to in her jacket. She had one vial. She had no, you know, vial of insulin to fill her pump. She had her pump on. She had her Dexcom on. Right. It was working. She had one meter somewhere she'd gotten and that was with her that she was able to get underneath the snow or something before they had to get out of there because the aftershocks and they moved the, all the, the Everest ER, they moved everything down to a safer part at the very end, beginning kind of base camp, an area that wasn't hit. Were, were the rest of her supplies just gone? 
Did she just have what she well, had? Well, they her? were then, yes. So what yeah. happened is then the helicopters flew a lot of the, the guys down from Camp 1 and 2, which is mm-hmm. where David was. David was not there when this happened with her again. <laughs> he was up high, and they got down. He still he couldn't believe it. Nobody could because they'd never seen Something anything like, like this, that. Yeah. Most people die up on the mountain, not down at base camp. Mm-hmm. So he and her, in between the aftershocks, I guess the aftershocks were really bad that day, and then they were still coming the next day. But they just quickly went over, and people started unbearing whatever they could and getting what they could. So she got quite a bit of her stuff, but she she could only get the stuff, I think, like, it must have been that same day or later or something. She was able to dig out a her sleeping bag, but it went for a body because right. all the people died around her. Right. Um, and she always kept some of her supplies in the bottom of her sleeping bag. So the supplies she had on her, she got through that night. And then she got some out of her sleeping bag and whatever the next day. And then her and David were able to get, I think, a lot of their stuff. And somebody erected two new tents and did everything. And they were able, they stayed, they ended up staying for a week to work on survival and recovery and cleaning up and helping everybody. You know, there was a small group that stayed to help. That's insane. So now I know when, when I first reached out to Svati and asked her if she would do the podcast, I mean, even I was like, wow, I shouldn't be asking somebody who just went through this to talk about okay. it. So, so I sent out this yeah, kind of like people. very like, you know, general email. I hope you're okay right. and stuff like that. And right. if you ever want to talk about this, it would be great. Yeah. And the response I got back from her, even though I didn't really know her that well, and it wasn't all in the words, was more like, I don't think I can really talk about this. Right. And, and But my mom could tell you a lot about how I right. prepped for it and what happened. Right. And is she still in that mindset? Like or- She has. It's been very up and down. So she came home. She had so much kind of just love and attention. It was just R&R. Yeah. It was like, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. But she wanted to talk to it. And then she started writing. She'd already been writing in her journal a little bit, but... Her process, really, of healing has been writing. Mm-hmm. The thing that was hardest is, so she was home because she didn't plan to get back until late May. She got home in the beginning of May. Mm-hmm. So after she got home, I was prepared to just give her as much space, everything she needed. And I, I still had not known how much she went through. Her fingers, she had frostnip, so it's like mild frostbite on her fingers because she hadn't had gloves. She was in she was in the work tent in David's tent when the thing hit. She was on her computer because they'd finally gotten Wi-Fi. They had Wi-Fi for the first time working in a long time. She was actually writing to her work people in New York to courts, writing an email. And I just seen her. She she had stuff on Facebook, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I saw her pop up on Facebook a couple of times. She had she had all this stuff because she was just getting back to be able to use her computer. And she's starting to write the word. I think we're having an E A R T H. And then she thought, wait a minute, I better get out of here. And that's when she saw. She looked at the cook and asked earthquake, and she thought, oh, cool, I'll see an avalanche close up. Well, she turns. The avalanche wasn't on Everest. It was on Mount Pumori behind her. She was one of the only people who actually saw it as it was starting to gather and come. And she said it was just like a, you know, Hollywood movie with the apocalypse because, you know. Yeah, I mean, how could it, run. How could it be anything but that? That's insane. And there's no, yeah, nowhere yeah, to go, no. nowhere to hide. You're not. No, you just yeah, run, and she right. tripped, and somebody got her up. I'd gotten it wrong on Facebook. I thought that. 
because when we were talking that night, she was so shocked. I was so shocked. She kept saying, can't believe I'm alive, Mom. I almost lost my... She was in... I mean, she was in shock. Yeah. But that's when I said, do you have enough diabetes things if you guys are in the survival mode and you just have this? Because we didn't know she, David would come, get down tomorrow. They thought mm-hmm. it might be three days for them. How would they get over the ice fall? Helicopters usually don't go up there. Right. A guy risked his life, a Swiss... Uh, Swiss helicopter guy in Nepal. Anyway, they got down, they got a lot back. But so then she was okay and had more stuff. But she at that point just had that one little what was left in the vial. She got some syringes that she could reuse if she had to out of the ER. And she can't remember if she had a glucagon, but I knew she had some way, you know, she still had the Dexcom on that was working fairly well, and I think one meter, so she could average those two. And how do you numbers. eat? How do you? How do you stay? What's the sustenance? They had food. Like they had yeah. a lot of food because they have a, they had food up there for two months, so okay. there was enough food between all of them, and they and they just lost. Okay. put stuff together to make shift things. Yeah, because up there they're they're doing that as well. But yeah, I mean, they lived in survival mode for a week. I mean, she had this blood bloody matted hair, you know, from her from the gash on the back of her head, she didn't get a shower until she got down to Kathmandu. Yeah. And so when she came home, that's why I'm, I'm amazed with diabetes and higher sugars, that that didn't get infected, that, Maybe you know, if it had happened in the U.S., you would have had it stitched up. Yeah, right, She right. didn't. It was bad. So at what point, and I'm, this is me supposing, right? Yeah. At what point do you completely fall apart? Is it after you know she's okay? Is it like when do you like explain? I I really when I think about it, I was I had it was so much like a roller coaster up and down because see even after the thing, uh-huh. you know I I just I fell apart and went down because my whole family was here because we actually had had my cousin and his wife were in town and we'd gone for a hike with them that morning and then so everybody stayed because we were all hoping to hear from Svati. And so when she called, everybody was cheering. And then I heard her whole story came down and broke down yeah. with all them because I said, you guys don't really, you know, how close to her dying. And then Florence, who's in the State Department, my sister works in the State Department. So then they were all about, well, you know, we're going to go to work tomorrow and find out how, um, was it a Sunday or Sunday? Anyway, they, they were going to find out how, how, how she should be on the first evacuation list, you know, mm-hmm. all these different things. She didn't want to leave and be evacuated. Right? She wanted to stay with David. And so, actually, I felt very comfortable with her, with him, because I knew he was the best person. So, the next thing was, one day we get a message. Then, a lot of times, couldn't get through to her. I didn't know what was happening. We tried to do messages through the Indian Army or others. So there was a lot of just up and down. Yeah. So I think I fell apart after I found out what she'd really gone through, right. how close she came to losing her life and all she'd been through. That's when I fell apart. Then there was a time when we got we woke up one morning and got a message that she'd been evacuated Kathmandu. So I was pretty sure she probably had a concussion because mm-hmm. I knew how hard she'd been hit from what she told me. Right. But... When I wake up and we hear from some friend or somebody that she was, that the special forces went up there and they brought people out and that she was in some Kathmandu hotel or hospital somewhere, I thought, oh my God, the worst has happened. She's got a concussion and do they know how to deal with the diabetes? So again, I'm going through a few hours of worry only to find out she did not go out. She was still up at base camp. And then the worst blow came. When I find out we're going to a family wedding that night, I'm waiting to see when she and David are going to hike out, right? With with a group of porters, they were getting everything together to take of his expensive cameras and all their gear and yeah, other people's stuff that had been left and clean up and do all these things up there. And I find out she's hiking out by herself 
with a guide and a porter and, and many porters with all this stuff that David had decided to stay, but he wanted her out of there. He just thought it was safer. Mm. And I was devastated, absolutely devastated. Mm. I thought if she's gone through all this, how can she go down through a, you know, a seven day hike on her own, Right, right. you know, emotionally and diabetes wise, she didn't even have the backup she had coming up. I said, she can't go without at least an IV bag of food. There's no clinics on the way there. There's nothing. Yeah. The, the, the country's torn apart. She's going to get into Kathmandu. They hadn't had enough water. Things weren't right. I was livid. I mean, I talked to his business manager. I wanted to call him over there. I was just, how could this happen? She forgives him. He was, he was not in his right mind. He was under incredible stress. He was worried about her staying up there. He thought she could do it physically and get down, not thinking of her, you know, she's not as strong mentally, maybe as him. He's in- incredible, even though, you know, she'd gone through all this stuff. Anyway, it turned out that this wonderful army doctor, Indian army doctor, who was camped next to them, refused to have her go by herself. She went over to say goodbye to them, and she broke, <laughs> broke down in tears, and he... he he really liked her and fell for her anyhow. He's the guy who really, really liked her. And anyway, he he said, I'm going to hike out with you. So they went down and they didn't get as far as they would because it was just too much and she was kind of devastated. It was just a difficult time. So that was probably the end, the, one of the most difficult things for me. So I think the whole story of this is that, you know, I thought it, the worst was over when she'd you know, when we prepared and she went and she was sick in the hospital. Then I thought, you know, she's sick when she's going up. Then when he wasn't there. Then when the avalanche, that was like the last straw when she was going down on her own. Anything could happen. She had no backup. She didn't even have a, they didn't have a satellite phone because the other one had to be left up there. She didn't have an IV. She had nothing. And she'd get down to Lukla where there was a huge backlog of people trying to get planes and helicopters to get back to Kathmandu to get out of the country. The country is Ruin in ruins. Right. So here I was, always feeling if she had him, her that was her safety net. And when he wasn't there, and she was going out like that, it was too much to bear. So I, it was very hard to go to sleep that night. I called friends of mine in California, a friend who went through this whole thing with me, my best friend. I mean, they were praying. I was praying. We were just doing whatever we could. I was trying to get through to her on the phone. Um, and I think I found out from her that this doctor was going with her. I just felt like I owed my life to him. I was so grateful to him. But apparently he only went the first to the first village. He had to go back up there. So then she had to hike by herself, I guess, with these other Sherpas down. She was supposed to go to Lukla. But the most amazing thing happened. I woke up the next morning and I've never been happier. There was a text from her saying, Mom, I'm in Kathmandu. Look at my Facebook page. I couldn't believe it. What had happened is she'd hiked down to another place called Farish where they had a clinic Foreigner, you know, foreigners used to have this clinic, and that's where they brought a lot of the seriously, most seriously wounded from Everest in the beginning. Anyway, she ran into the two doctors she'd known up at the Everest ER, and they'd been waiting for a helicopter out. And right after she got there, she was about to go and take her first shower. Right. They call her and said, "Hurry up! The helicopter's here. You've got to get on with us." Yeah. So anyway, she gets on the helicopter. Hardly, just threw clothes over her, wet by, never even got to take her full shower. They took one helicopter to Lukla. They got another one. It was the on the insurance of one of the doctors who had cut her knee open, worked through with her knee. Just amazing story, Scott. Yeah, so anyway, so she got there, and she was with them, and she was so happy and relieved, and that was probably, that was one of the happiest days of my life because I was just 
so relieved. So she was out of there. She was Kathmandu, and I knew then she'd make it home. I feel like I saw a picture of her on a helicopter at at that part of the story. Yeah. Can can you send that to me? I'd love people to see that. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. I'll send that. So anyway, so that, so it's like every time you think, you know, you get over this hump and then there's something else, it's just life and it's life with type one and yeah. it's blood sugars and it's everything. Cause blood sugars, there are no perfect blood sugars. You can have a plateau of everything's going great. Your kids are doing fine. And then they're going to hit some growth thing or they're going to get sick. Right. Yeah. Or you're going to travel and you forgot this or that, or who knows what's yeah. going to happen. So right. I'm going to ask you this question that I already know the answer to, but I'm going to ask you anyway, cause I think it, it very nicely kind of bookends this conversation. Okay. N- knowing everything, you know, now would you have stopped her? No, because it'll make her the person she is for life. This has changed her. She's not the person she was when she left. She came back to New York, and you were asking before if she's kind of suffered from this. So what happened is she did really well. First week, week, uh, month she was home with us, and we did a lot of kind of healing type things. I drove her back to New York. I didn't want to put her on just a bus or train to go home. And we went via New Hampshire, so we had a nice little R&R and visited relatives and friends Mm -hmm. and went up and saw those friends, Andy and Kathy, the one, you know, who's David's good friend who followed this whole thing, who's got the Alzheimer's. This actually helped him a lot because he felt so much a part of it, the whole thing. So it's really been kind of healing. Oh, so we were seeing them. So then I dropped her in New York on the way back on a via five-day trip we did. So she really was doing pretty well, but she gets back and it's like, it's just not the same. She wanted to move from her apartment. She went out with a friend and just listened as they talked. You know, it's like her life is a when you've gone through that, you've hit a different bar. You just don't talk about Reagan, you know. So basically she was felt very lost, like the PTSD, the way you feel, really connected more with the people who'd gone through this that she was in touch with. So they were texting and doing stuff. And then a good friend of hers, unfortunately, from from college, uh, who's like a mentor for her, died in an unexpected house fire. She was very bright. She was a Fulbright scholar. She was here in D.C. It was in D.C. I was away at ADA, and her friend died in a house fire. And she was bright. she just gotten her master's at Georgetown, celebrated. And so I remember getting a text from her saying, I'm just, I feel numb. I'm just... It's too much happening. It was too much. It was too much death. It was too much after all. So she pretty much just... You know, it was just too much for her. So I was really concerned about her, and then she worked her way back. And so now she's, you know, I think the writing has made a big difference. And I would imagine. talking to friends and David, then David went back to Nepal, and she wanted to go with him, and then she wanted to go do all these extreme things. She's going to go swimming with whale sharks at the end of this month. Mm-hmm. They're apparently supposed to be very gentle in Cancun. It's for work to write it. So anyway, so it all works out, but would I let her do it again? Yes, you do not let anything stop you because that's what life is. It's taking risks and you find out what you're capable of. No, I mean, that's, that's it right there. What you said, that's, that's why I wanted you to come do the podcast. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. That is such a, I'm sorry. It's a lot talking. I think it's, it's for me, it's cathartic. I I went through a lot with this. I don't think I've totally. No, I'm glad. um, I'm glad you were able to decompress as much. I decompressed with her when she first came home, but it's still. Very, very. No, I'm glad to be pleasant. part of helping you with that. I listen. I tell Thank people you. all the time that when I wrote my book, like the biggest gift about writing is affording yeah. affording yourself the time to stop and think back thoughtfully over yeah. your life. And it, yeah. I think maybe talking about that 
this here today maybe helped you that way. And I think that yeah, Swati sitting down and writing about it is going to help her that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm still writing about the, the whole experience. I just haven't had all the time because I write a lot, too. So. I just can't. Yeah, it just it's a very, Helps. very cathartic it was amazing. exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, but she she's had an experience that will stay with her for the rest of her life, make her what she is. In fact, she just got the okay. She found a new apartment. Uh, with some somebody else, she's right, she's been living with three friends. It just she just couldn't go back to the exact kind of thing. Her work has been wonderful. They've been very involved since this happened. Well, you've, but, all, you've all had that experience. You've all had an experience that's so, changed your life, and I think telling the story yeah. is going to change people when they hear it too. So yeah, thank you. Yeah. I mean, geez, yeah. I can't she'll, thank you. She'll 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 do that for something with diabetes next next yeah. year. She's been asked to. So anyway, so that is that. When her when her, when it comes out in print, the story she's writing, because as an editor's expressed interest, I'll make sure to send it to you. Oh please, you'll I'll, remember because I've told you told you a lot of these little pieces, and you'll no, see I'll, how I'll, she writes it up. I'll link everything back, uh, you know, to this and and get that. I I just I really can't thank you enough. We've had a couple of impactful episodes in a row now. That it just worked out that way. Um, mm-hmm. But I spoke to uh, to Will Halver's mom. Like two episodes ago. Oh, I know. I saw that. Yeah, it's nuts. It it's really unbelievable. is. unbelievable. It really is crazy. So it's, I can't, I, I can't even imagine. I just, yeah, you know, it's there for the grace of God goes, go any of us because it's such an unpredictable disease. And it's why, you know, you, I was just going to say, it's why you sharing the story is so important and why, and why Lyndall sharing her story is so important because people yeah. need to leave. You know, I said it to her when I was talking to her and I, I feel like, you know, I could have said it to you today. As yeah. horrible as it is, you need to keep living your life until your life stops happening. You don't want, you know, it's a it's a good message. It's a message of hope. Like if you're mm-hmm. if you're a person whose life is cut short, that's completely tragic. But it would be more tragic to if you didn't live it. If you didn't live it, yeah, yeah, that's all. I agree. Yeah. No, it's really it's it's true. You really can't let it stop you. It'll make you stronger and resilient, and that's the most important thing we can give our kids. That's it. It's, it really is it's yeah. the ability. To do that, and they'll they'll make it. Well, they'll make you. it. They'll be okay. Thank you so. Elna, oh, anyway. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to do You're this. You're welcome. I, I probably talked too much, but it was bringing back a lot. Of, uh, it's funny. I just went back in my chair and it's bringing back a lot of thoughts and memories. So I need to I need to still write and process some of this stuff. It was a lot. It was for me. It was mostly. It was a roller coaster because it was like, how could anything else happen? So for me, it was that last straw when she was going out on her own. But see, it worked out. But Who would I, have ever thought? All I was worried was I kept thinking she's hiking, and if she gets sick, and there's absolutely no backup now. And after everything she's been through, and I was so upset with David, hold it, and it's like boom, it worked out. Yeah, off yeah. on two helicopters, and there she was the next morning. That was just unbelievable. So the whole thing was a series of that. So well, I don't think you should. Don't apologize for talking a lot because I was riveted while you were speaking. I think everyone else will be too, and it really did give you it gave me the feeling while you were talking that you were you were processing and talking it's just very interesting to listen to and i appreciate you sharing that you're welcome well, thanks you're so welcome. much that's it for this episode of the juice box podcast surviving everest with type 1 diabetes a huge thank you to elna for sharing her story and for svati for um, putting me in touch with her mom and she said i wasn't able to tell the story herself but she thought her mom would do a great job and i can't disagree it's true. You really can't let it stop you. It'll make you stronger and resilient. And that's the most important thing we can give our kids. 